welcome to the Theology Podcast. And if you've been following us for a while, you probably recognize that sound in the background. You are actually hearing the ambiance of a genuine pub environment. So we're actually in a place where there's there's uh, stuff being brought to us, drinks and food and so forth, and we're in each other's physical presence, uh, which is great. We're not just sort of talking to each other through the funnel of Zoom. <laughs> but if you are here for the first time and you're wondering who I am, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor. I've taught philosophy. I'm an author. I've been an uh, investor in real estate for years and years. Anyway, that's enough about me. And uh, we've, I've got some friends, the friends that are with me every week. And uh, why don't we uh, turn to you now, Glenn, and have you introduce yourself. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor at his, of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries, author, do a bunch of different stuff too. Yep. And your most recent book is? Slaying Leviathan, a book on resistance theory yeah. and limited government. And that's getting a lot of attention, and it's going to get a lot more attention in the days ahead. <laughs> yeah, I suspect so. <laughs> anyway, and then Tom. Tom, tell us about yourself. Uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. All right, great. Now, um, it's your day, Tom. Yep. So uh, you've talked to Glenn and me a little bit about this, uh, what we're going to get into today. It's fascinating stuff. Go for it. Okay, well... Um, before unleashing the topic, um, there's enough events happening in our world that uh, people probably want uh, some, something comforting or something uh, uh, maybe relevant to those, uh, those various events that are happening. Gotcha. And today's topic may, from the, from the face of it, seem like it's completely irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's why people turn to us, for a little irrelevance. That's you know, right. Everybody else is talking about relevant things, and people just get so tired that's of right. all the relevance. They, they would like to escape. That's right. Into the, into the beautiful, into the sublime. That's in, right. Into the and, true. Into, into, into the opiate of the people, right? And I got to say, we really do high-level irrelevance. <laughs> but it was, uh, it's exactly that point that I think it was, um, uh, let me say it. She, she wrote a book on um, the early church and the notion of the mind in relation to faith. And she basically said that we will realize that most of eternity was spent doing things in relationship to God that seem, from this worldly perspective, highly irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if, if that's the case, then I think we're, we're going to see that, that that kind of shift in opposition between relevance and irrelevance um, kind of breaks down and we, when we realize that, that the eternal and the temporal are not in opposition when they're ordered the right way. Mm. Um, then we'll recognize that everything we're talking about today has significance for the temporal and uh, also for the eternal. So, right, right. so what is that topic? Well, one of the things I wanted to do is return to something we talk a lot about in my theology classes, um, is, is the, a lot of these what we call almost fissures that have developed in, in Christianity, or these oppositions, if you will. We sort of have the opposition sometimes of faith and reason, um, the opposition of you know, uh, works and you know, um, justification and righteousness. Um, so so we, we talk a lot about the oppositions, the either-ors that show up on um, history versus, you know, um, philosophy or metaphysics. Um, and, and so what I want to look at is kind of really return to those early stages when the church kind of just moved into the utter part, uttermost parts of the earth. When it started to leave Judea and its debates of who's in and who's out in relationship to, to Israel and started to see who is in, in terms of, in, in terms of being uh, the Gentile world, and what are we to do with it? Um, were we mainly, as, as early Christians, meant to go out and basically turn the Gentile world into a bunch of Hebrews? Um, some people thought that was the case. Um, yeah, they call those people the Judaizers. The Judaizers. And, and, um, and so that's not really the direction even in the New Testament that um, was, was selected. Um, it was actually one in which we started to realize that Christ is also the light unto the Gentiles. Right. And also the light that lights every human. And so 
those early days um, are not... You, you, wait, you, you mean that God actually did some things in a way that would help people kind of be ready for the message? It looks like that he did. <laughs> it does look like he well, did. Amazing. That's amazing. How could that possibly be? Yep. Uh, you know, it's a preparation for the gospel, right? Um, and, and, you know, I often see, you know, people probably quite shocked that God was providentially active outside of Israel. Wow. God's providence applying to somebody beside the Israelites. That's amazing. The Israelites. Um, and, and, and shocking, shocking. And another thing, just to throw in there, the Hebrew language did not drop out of heaven. <laughs> Tom, I'm afraid some of our listeners may be collecting firewood right now. <laughs> right, right. And so, yeah. Well, but one of the things that it often shows up, and I'll just kind of show w where this is still, you know, a, a common assumption. So we often talk about the way in which the Hebrew versus the, the Greek mind. You see yeah. this all the time show yeah. up. And, and really, it's a fraud. It, it, it isn't credible. It's not credible historically. It's not in the New Testament at all. Um, it's not even in the Old Testament, for that matter. Um, and, and although fine you know, thinkers, I mean, you had Tom Torrance, who, who really, uh, he really wanted to make a lot out of that. And it was actually a liberal James Barr, Old Testament scholar, who said, that doesn't hold weight. You can't think like that. And early Christianity understood that. There was the mil it was a shared milieu of thought to which everyone was drawing on. It wasn't this mind versus this. It, it was, it's far more complicated from that. And so when we move to these simplistic ways of trying to read a certain understanding as if it was a Hebrew versus a Greek, we're, we're not really dealing with reality here. We're dealing with constructs that come much later. And so, um, so the topic, if you will, um, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? All right. And uh, if, if you're unfamiliar with that, I mean, it was, it was uh, made familiar through a Tertullian, right? Right. Um, early, early church thinker. And uh, many think that he was pitting a certain kind of um, faith against reason, um, which he really wasn't. Um, and uh, maybe we can kind of play around with that for a little bit. But what he was really trying to do is deal with something that is a far more complicated topic. And I think that's what I want to enter into. Um, the way in which um, Christianity and classical culture sort of engaged each other and the way in which um, Christianity transformed classical culture to actually put it into Christian service um, because it should be put into Christian service. Right. Now, this, this uh, I think, uh, is predicated upon a uh, truth that Christians confess, and that is God is the creator yes. of all things, and uh, the creator of even people who don't confess that he is the creator. Yes. So, and, that, and that he not only has sort of wound them up and let them go, he actually sustains them and, and is involved in an ongoing basis with their well-being. Uh, and that doesn't mean that everything that they think is right or everything that they do is sound or just. But it means that we live and move and have our being in him before we know that we live and move and have our being in him. That's right. right? That's right. right. So, so now those things being the case... Uh, and the fact that we have, you know, the Apostle Paul tell us that it's through the things that are seen that we can perceive the things that are unseen. You know, the fact that there is a creator that deserves praise and thanks. But even more than that, that the very creation itself is structured in such a way so as to lead us to that conclusion. So, you know, I, I've used this illustration mm -hmm. before, um, but when it comes to this whole matter of uh, being able to talk about things that are valuable and, and true, uh, we, we draw on uh, the creation itself in order to, to do that, yep. even at the most abstract level. If we just think about, you know, uh, you know prepositions. Prepositions, you know, imply value. Yeah. So when we talk about in and out, or we talk about over and under, or we talk about before and after, all yeah. those things that, you know, provide the very kind of building blocks for sentences. Yeah. Those things are not just data points. Yeah. They imply 
things, they, they imply certain value values, uh, or they carry they carry values with them. So if I were to ask you, would you rather be on top or on bottom? Ninety-nine times out of hundred, people say oh, on top, on top, because that's the position of advantage. So when we think about heaven, we talk about up. Yeah. We talk about submission. We talk about coming under. You know, all yeah. these different things that's right. imply. But we haven't even gotten to God. <laughs> people, we were, we were dealing with this, the raw data that we derive from the physical world, which coincidentally, everyone from any culture gets. That's right. You know, it's not like we have to spend a lot of time on these basic, <laughs> basic things. <laughs> well, and, and, it, and it's surprising because the, there's really what I call the, the kind of, um, well, it, it goes back to the, the famous modernist historian Adolf von Harnack, famous German. A brilliant person. Von Harnack again. Von Harnack, a very brilliant. Um, and I, to me, but, but let me, let me you know, we played this game before. If you yeah. could go back in time and kill somebody, yeah, <laughs> Rousseau. <laughs> yeah, we know. We know Glenn would go after Rousseau. This would be. This is like the Terminator, the Terminator plot line. You know, you know, if for, for 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 Glenn, it's it's Rousseau. For me, maybe I don't know. Maybe uh, Occam. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. For you, it's Varn- it's Van Harnack because he keeps coming up. I could go after Occam too, I mean, even though I do think, I think maybe, maybe Glenn would defend Occam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so, well, Van Harnack, um, I, I'll, I'll give a, a kind of a statement. To, Who is this sinister mind? This sinister mind. Well, he was a, a church historian, a modernist, and he was very favorable to the new developing science of of kind of mis- modern um, historical method. And so it was very naturalistically run. Um, he wanted, it was kind of the model of, of sort of um, a, trying to apply the kind of objectivity to science to history. I mean, that was that what he wanted. I mean, that was the kind of, of course, you had the, the big debates between Geschichte and Historie in Germany. Um, and and, uh, and then that entered into th- theology. But one of the things you might want to define that debate. Yeah, yeah. Well, one um, one would be uh, dealing with um, history kind of naturalistically and all vertically, and then Geschichte, if, if I remember I mean horizontally. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Sorry, horizontally. Right. And then Geschichte would be dealing more with well, when it's applied to theology, would be the way in which subjective and objective interact. And so, for example, in theology, it would be like redemptive or salvation history, Geschichte, right? Um, and so, so that that yeah. So one would be history would just sort of be objective without really touching, getting into the skin. Um, but is that even possible? It, it, well, <laughs> no, in other words, we're, we're, you got to select the data, yeah. right? I mean, you get you got to yeah. you got like if if I'm, I've ever to describe what's happening at this table scientifically, where do I stop? Yeah, I, do I go all the way down to subatomic, uh, subatomic, uh, you know, reality, and to say, you know, these are what the protons are doing at the moment, <laughs> exactly. you know, or you know, how do we, yeah. how do we select? But you, I'm having a little fun here, you know. Yeah, I mean? and I think for Harnack, to be to be fair, it was is what what could you could found credible sources for? Um, you could tie to real things that you could show really happened. Um, he would have written off most of the the New Testament is yeah mythology. And um, and really, really, he, he narrowed down what, what what you could really say is what the essence of Christianity. He wrote a book, The Essence of Christianity, which was the, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of humanity. Right? I mean, that was the gospel, and he saw that as the simple gospel, sort of like Erasmus had a certain you know humanist. And and so and he had a huge debate with Karl Barth, who who kind of w- he he would see as moving into this the- theologized history Geschichte, um, and and therefore moving from reality, if you will, and kind of imposing a dogma onto the the, the particulars of history. Um, but but what Harnack was would really emphasize as he saw his orthodox christianity and the catholic intellectual tradition i don't mean roman catholicism i mean what right. every orthodox confessing christian creedal christian that's right anyone anyone who confesses the doctrines of the core creeds um, would have been the the byproduct of this synthesis between a impure hellenic philosophical vision and this pure hebraic 
um, Christianity that are in opposition, but somehow they got woven together. So his goal was sort of to unweave them and get to a pure Christianity. Um, he saw it as the Protestant project, right? Protestant wanted to return to the, the foundational sources, the apostolic foundation, and retrieve um, something that had not been distorted through the processes of time. Um, Harnack saw him doing that, but with the historical method. He saw the Bible already itself was a kind of wrongly moving in the direction of synthesis rather than actually... Okay, that's just an important point to settle in on a little bit because there's plenty of material in the New Testament that would um, evidence or evince a kind of Greek outlook. Yep. And the first one being that the New Testament is actually written in... Greek. Greek. That's right. That's right. But, you know, (laughs) but if we were to... But but I think a a well-developed sort of sense can detect a lot of stuff going on in the Old Testament as well. That's in other right. words, this idea that you've got this sort of you know, hermetically sealed thing mm-hmm. called you know, God's people and that there's absolutely nothing coming in from the outside is completely false. That's well, right. You know, for our audience, you might think about the apparent, my word, apparent tension that exists between James and Paul. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, which I believe Harnack also put a lot of emphasis on, that there was a split in early Christianity. James represented Hebraic Christianity, Paul increasingly Greek Christianity. And the two of them are in obvious tension because Paul says we're saved by faith without works. James says we're saved by faith with works. You mean the misogynist, Paul. Oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm getting ahead so, of myself. Now, now there, there, a careful reading of James resolves that sure. pretty quickly. Yeah. But one of the things that you find with a lot of biblical critics is that they don't do careful reading. Well, in a lot of the guys, a lot of biblical you know, uh, critics, you know, biblical critics, really have very, uh, I, I think, underdeveloped uh, theological and philosophic, uh, you know, yeah. sort of uh, out or frame, frameworks within which to, to, to think. Uh, for many of them, one of the things that's really just astounded me over the years is just how little education. Uh, a lot of, you know, ostensibly well-educated people have in philosophy, particularly classical philosophy. Yeah. It's and just, it's, uh, it's unbelievable to me. I even, like, even historians of ideas, I mean, Michael Gillespie, who I, I learned a lot from, but he, he completely gets backwards what happened with voluntarism and nominalism. Yeah. He, he completely gets it backwards yeah, and yeah. makes his whole argument that. Yeah. And he's got a lot of insight, but you get that foundational issue wrong. Right. It, you know, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's a side point. But, yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're exactly right. And, uh, and, and I think you see this um, over and over again. I mean, I, well, I think Richard Muller has this great point when he was discussing hermeneutics. And he was saying, well, the, the historic critic today will, will, will apply its methods and say, well, you just couldn't get the things that the early church got through applying these meso- methods. And to which Richard Muller said... Yeah, but the early church applying its methods would have told the higher critic that you just couldn't get from your methods what we're getting because your methods aren't the right ones to be using. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and actually, as an aside, one of the things that I find really amazing in terms of biblical interpretation is how little we look at the New Testament authors to determine an appropriate way of approaching the Old Testament. Yeah, yes. right, right. That's right. Yeah, they, they violate a lot of the things I was taught that I, you know, that I shouldn't, shouldn't do. Right. You know, you yeah. know, with, with, you know, you know, sort of the historical, grammatical, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's Paul, right. Paul didn't seem to read those books. That's that, right. And so what you do have is this, you know, it's what, um, you know, some other, other thinkers have said. It's, it's really the imposition of their own dogma as historicists or, you know, a certain kind of... Um, naturalist view of history or a certain view of history, but it's really not. It's really driven by a certain theology that pits right, right. The, the historical and, the, um, and the, the metaphysical or the philosophical against each other. I think, uh, I think one of the ways to, to sort of help people sort of, you know, get what we're getting at with this is if we think about the past and just tr- con- consider it on a horizontal plane, yeah. everything uh, that we need to know happened in the world, hmm. and one thing, you know, affects another. We have chains of causation. We have environments that we can, you know, delve into and try to 
you know, uh, understand and, and use those environments to explain, in other words, contextualization, the whole idea that if that's we understand right. the context, but there's no vertical dimension. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the whole Bible makes no sense without a vertical, vertical dimension. dimension. <laughs> and that's why, I mean, Matt Levering used to say that, you know, the, the horizontal for the church was always coupled by the participatory and the vertical. Yeah, you right. can't, it was nominalism really is his argument that eventually broke them apart. Um, again, that's, it, that term is being used heuristically, but, but I get what he's saying. Once, once the, the historical gets severed off from the transcendent um, as its origin, center, and end, therefore it's unleashed and it becomes the, 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 it becomes the the reality plane on which everything else is is being read, and so this is exactly what isn't happening in in the New Testament and in the early church. Um, but uh, Yaroslav Pelikan's got an exceptional book. Um, it's called Christianity and Classical Culture: The Metamorphosis of Natural Theology in the Christian Encounter with Hellenism. And these were his Gifford lectures. And if anyone doesn't know those, it's really they were lectures on the way in which um, natural theology should be. Um, related to in, in Christianity in particular. But you have, you, it's a very odd group because you had someone like Karl Barth who completely denied natural theology presenting, um, presenting there. And then you had uh, Eshin Gilson um, present, which is, I think, critiqued Barth. Uh, I think Stanley Yaki presented there as well. So very interesting figures. Stanley Hauerwas more recently. But uh, one of the things he begins the book with is, is what we were just saying. It remains one of the most momentous linguistic convergences in the entire history of the human mind and spirit that the New Testament happens to have been written in Greek, not in the Hebrew of Moses and the prophets, not in the Aramaic of Jesus and his disciples, nor yet in the Latin of the Imperium Romanum, but in the Greek of Socrates and Plato or at any rate, in a reasonably accurate facsimile thereof, distinguished and even disfigured through koinone by the intervening centuries of Hellenistic usage. And so this already starts to break down this notion, just from the obvious fact, that the Hellenic and the Hebraic are in opposition, and that the, 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 the philosophical and the, the theological are to be understood only in terms of the oppositional. What you stood. Mm -hmm. right. um, yeah, there, there are multiple different things that this is triggering in my head, some <laughs> of which course. will be helpful, some of which won't. <laughs> but one thing on, on an epistemological level, on the yeah. level of knowledge, yeah. one of the fundamental issues throughout medieval thought mm -hmm. is the relationship between reason and revelation. Yeah. And ultimately, that's, that's again this relationship on some level between Hellenism, uh, Hellenistic thought and Hebrew thought. But it's worth noting, as he said, that the New Testament was written in Greek, which yeah. does bring those two things. It was written in Greek by a bunch of Jews. Right. So it, right. it does bring both of those things together. That's yeah. However, there are a couple of other things that, that are kind of interesting. Uh, one of them on a linguistic level and the other on a literary level. Mm -hmm. Linguistically, Greek and Hebrew could not be further apart oh, yeah, as right, languages. Right, right. Greek is highly technical, highly specific. Yeah. He Hebrew is much more atmospheric, much more, you, you understand words by context, not by yeah. precise distinctions. Right, sometimes the Greek same so word is used in a variety yeah. of ways. The right. only way you know is how it's being so, used in a sentence. Yeah. So if you follow through on things like the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, that's got to affect how you think. Mm -hmm. yeah. And along with that, there's a, an important work, I think it was written in the 70s, of literary criticism called Mimesis by Eric Auerbach. Oh yeah, I've got yeah. that. And his, yeah. um, his initial chapter is called Odysseus's Scar. Yeah. And what he says in there is he talks about how in the Odyssey, there's yeah. this incident that occurs where a serving woman, when Odysseus returns home in disguise, an old servant there recognizes him because as she's washing his feet, he's got a scar on his thigh. Mm. And she recognizes the scar. And as soon as this comes up, Homer goes off in a long tangent on how Odysseus got the scar. Mm. And this is very typical mm -hmm. of Greek. Mm. Uh, first of all, they, they liked what my Greek professor called fullness of expression, which means yeah. you always expand everything out 
grammatically and even incidentally mm-hmm. to its fullest extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What Auerbach then does is he goes to Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Mm. And he notes, we don't know what either of them were thinking. Right. We have no description of, of the thought, the circumstances, anything like that. It's just God said, do it. He went, he did it, and you know, right. so on. And he says, these are two radically different oh, yeah. poles in terms of how you present material. Right. Now, I think, as an aside, I think that the reason why Scripture is written the way it is in part is that Scripture teaches us that only God knows what people are thinking. Only God knows what's in the heart. So it would be inappropriate for a scripture writer to talk about that. Well, I think there's a theological point there. But Auerbach's point is, is that these are, again, two radically different poles around which literature in general revolves. Now, the question is, how does that tie into Hebrew and Greek? Yeah, well, I think when we think about Hebrew, and I've noted this myself, mm-hmm. I've observed this, this sort of the, the economy of biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of things that we wish we knew. Even when in the New Testament, you know, the, there are things, you know, it, it's written in Greek. We look at the synoptic gospels. We're never told Jesus, you know, the color of his eyes or how tall yeah. he was or anything like that. Yeah. You know, it's, so there's, there's a lot of detail that's, that's, that the, re, the reader is required to supply, yeah. you know, sort of imaginatively, which I think is partly... Uh, well, it's part of the genius of it, you could say, in, in the sense that it brings us into the story. Now, when we, when we think about Homer in the fullness of expression, now we're given something else with that that's also you know, remarkable and worth reflecting on, but, but it's, it's more or less uh, an image that we're, in, we're being uh, encouraged to sort of uh, cherish in our minds, but also mm-hmm. kind of live a- according to. Yeah. Uh, when I think about he- Hebrew, it's sort of like something that's inviting us in, mm-hmm. and you can kind of almost see yourself as a participant in the story. In other words, this is this yeah. includes me, and it invites you to ask those questions. Right? How would I feel in this circumstance? Right. What would I be thinking here? It, it invites you in in a different way than Homer does. Homer's much more like a sure. movie. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and when you read about Achilles, you say, "What an idiot!" <laughs> <laughs> you know. In other words, you're, you you have a, kind of a distance from him at times, where you say, "How could he do that? How could he say that? How could he behave that way?" Whereas, because of the silences with, you know, Scripture and Hebrew, you don't have that sort of you get you like you just said. You kind of enter into the story more. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I mean in, in agreement with all that. I think what's going on here is a little bit different. It's talking in particular about the New Testament and the Christian vision, and is there an opposition in Christianity between the Hebraic and and the Greek? And I think what you what what's being argued here is from the New Testament already, you start to see it more porous. There's a shared milieu already. The Septuagint has been in place, which drew not only off of Hebraic thought, but brought it into conversation with the, the terms, the, the grammar, and the meaning that come out of also the, what went into the terms used and, and expressed. And so you, you see a, a fuller, see, I, I think what had happened with von Harnack is he wanted to think that in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, you can kind of peel back and kind of ha- find in that a Hebraic mind using Greek, and I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I'll give you an, a great example. Um, comes out of the, the book of Revelation. Um, the, the, it's one of the, um, the situations, grace to you and peace from he who is, he who was, and he is to come. There's a whole long Greek line going on there. But what you get there and what the early church saw there was this strong connection both between the theophany to Moses in the burning bush with the metaphysical oon of classical Greek ontology. Right, right. And so the, this kind of thing was recognized in the, by the earliest Christians um, because they shared a milieu in which that, the, those Greek terms made sense not just in terms of, of, of the biblical narrative and story, but also in terms of their, their wider Hellenic significance, and it was bringing them into... Um, a, a shared reflection that allowed for it to develop its theology in a Hellenic setting. Right. I remember when I was first introduced to this, these, uh, re, you know, these these issues. Yeah. Uh, when I was an undergrad, undergraduate, and I was taking a course in church history, and uh, the professor was great. You know, he was a very talented uh, teacher. Yeah. 
He, uh, he introduced this subject with the line, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Yeah. yeah. So the idea was in the fullness of time. In other words, things were set. Things were ready. Yeah. And that includes a kind of cosmopolitan Greek culture that's already suffused with a kind of uh, sort of uh, interest in yeah. fun- fundamental questions yeah. and questions that get to the very f- sort of fabric of reality. Yeah. And so what better environment in which, t- you know, could you, uh, could you ask for the gospel to enter into yeah. than a, in, an, in an environment where people are already asking really foundational questions? And, well, you know, and you can look within the Hebrew world, the Jewish world, at Philo of Alexandria, right. who is heavily influenced by Neoplatonic thought. Right. I mean, he's, right. he is a Jewish Neoplatonist. Right. Um, or um, oh, look at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning, yeah. to a Jew, that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, and, you know, God speaks the universe into existence, so we have the word there. But the word, the logos, means a lot in Mm -hmm. Greek thought, too, in both Stoic and uh, Neoplatonic thought. And you see it in the very text, because it's the light that lights every one. That is already moving one. I mean, it it would have been affirmed in in the the whole uh, uh, Old Testament. Um, Debar and 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 and, and uh, all all that it means, but it is starting to widen its range so much so that Justin Martyr, who I don't think was completely ignorant of what the earliest church figures and the apostles taught, um, made that connection very quickly to to the point of martyrdom. Um, and you you see, you know, that early logos Christology develop um, straight out of that connection. Um, and, and you see it in the, you know, you would just mention the prepositional sort of prepositional metaphysics is what uh, one biblical scholar calls it, is they were very aware when they were saying from, through, yes. and to, that dealing right. with ontological language that was not, the, was not the commonplace of, like you said, the, the, the strong redemptive historical emphasis, but was, was infused right into the biblical material because they understood those questions um, are, are, are such that they're of significance to a wider range than just the immediate, you yeah, know, the, the immediate audience of the, the New the, Testament. The problem with historicism is when it's honest, uh, it fun- fundamentally can't com- sort of be com- made compatible with Christianity. Yeah. And when it is, ma- it, when, when people attempt to make it work, yeah. they're taking too many things for granted. Yeah, and they're, and what they take for granted, you know, that, those are their blind spots. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to this preposition, the, the preposition sort of pre- prepositional ontology, you know, if you can either be blind to it, you know, yeah. and just sort of assume that you know, sort of the historical, you know, sort of unfolding of things is all there is to know. Yeah, and you're just not aware of this vertical dimension that suffuses reality to the point that we can't even get through a day without assuming a metaphysic. And, and, yep. and, it's, and it's interesting because what you see happening here on a theological note is as the gospel is not for the Jew only but also for the Gentile, um, you get to see that Christ is the fulfillment of the desire of the nations. You get to see that there's a wider providence than merely covenant history. It is one of the engrafting in those that otherwise were left out. And so, what you begin to see is the actual the the, the perfection and restoration of all of that fragmented and broken um, language that was connected to idols and impurity being sanctified and brought into the service of the gospel and its mission in the world. I mean, I think this is really what you get: the uttermost parts of the world. And so, and so what that is, is it, it's, bringing, it's bringing in, as Paul said, you know, they're, they're, you, these people didn't have access to the revelation that the Jews had, but some of them even did these things just because of, again, the revelation and creation. But here's a, a curious one. I just, I'm going to read this quote. It's a little bit long, but I just want to ask you what it, who it reminds you of. Um, so this is, uh, this is, I mean, some of you will already know where I'm going with this, but um, what born fools uh, were all who lived in ignorance of God? 
From the good things before their eyes, they could not learn to know him who is and failed to recognize the artificer through whom they observed his handiwork. Fire, wind, swift air, the circle of the starry signs, rushing water, or the great lights of heaven that rule the world. These they accounted as gods. If it was through delight in the beauty of these things that people supposed them gods, they ought to have understood how much better is the Lord and master of them all. For it is by the prime author of all beauty that they were created. If it was through astonishment at their power and influence, people would have learned from these how much more powerful is the one who made them. For the greatness and beauty of created things give us a corresponding idea of the creator. Who does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Paul. And guess where it comes? Go ahead, tell us. The wisdom of Solomon. All right. Which we kind of bracketed out of the canon, but <laughs> 13 verse through 5. In, in many, I mean, a lot of the, the orthodox exegete will talk about that, the right, affinity right. there. But he's talking about something that was in that milieu. That you, when you started off with what fools they are, I thought Luther. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, staying within the canon, though, yeah. you think about, say, Ecclesiastes, eternity in the heart. Yeah. The idea that there's somehow within us kind of disposition, a longing for the eternal. Don Richardson, the peace child. Remember, remember yep. him, right? Yeah. So Don Richardson, for those of you who have not heard great, of him. Great story, yeah. Yeah, well, he was a missionary, a Bible translator, and he, uh, he, he uh, discovered something uh, quite accidentally, well, actually, it's providentially, but in, from his perspective, accidentally, that was, a, you know, a, a matter of, it was a, it, he was chagrined. Yeah. So he was <laughs> translating scripture, translating uh, gospel uh, in Papua New Guinea, and each night he would share with the elders of the community, you know, what he had translated into their language. Well, over time, they were fascinated with the story, and over time, you know, at being engrossed in it, they, they, they started to identify with di different figures in the story. And when the, when the betrayal by Judas occurs in the story, they immediately... Yeah. Laugh and applaud yeah. and 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 look up to Judas as a really sharp and bright guy. Yeah, they like to see him as the hero of the story. <laughs> they, they do. They see him as the hero of the story, like somebody that they ought to emulate in their own sort of you know sort of uh, ongoing you know, conflict with their neighboring tribes, right? Yeah, because so, because in their culture, yeah. befriending a an enemy. Right. Se uh, secretly an enemy, befriending them and then betraying them was considered a mark of, of virtue, actually. Right, right. You're a sharp guy. <laughs> so anyway, so here, here's Don Richardson, you know, a Bible <laughs> translator who has created a cult to Judas. <laughs> so he's like, what do I do about this? How, how do I handle this? Well, he, he studies their culture and he discovers something, a practice known as the peace child. And what happens in, the, in, in, in Papua New Guinea is that when two tribes are at war and they are ready for peace, one tribe offers a child to the other tribe to raise and become a member of that tribe, thereby binding the two, the two groups together uh, through that child. And Richardson says, that's it. Yeah, and <laughs> that's one, it. One more thing's critically important here. The peace child was sacrosanct. Yes. No one could harm the peace child. That's right, right, right. So that becomes the, the, the window through which the light of the gospel shines into those people. And um, almost like overnight, the entire community is converted. Because Richardson says, Christ is the peace child that's been given to you. And he wants to be at peace with you. And they're like, of course we want to be at peace with God. But this is the point. God was at work yeah. in their world, yeah. planting these good dreams, or, yeah. or, or inspiring these good dreams, as C.S. Lewis said. Yeah. And God was at work in the Greek world, believe it or not, through mm -hmm. people like Socrates, believe it or not. Yeah. And Plato and Aristotle and so forth, which even Zwingli considered to be early saints. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something when you when you create these hard and fast oppositions, yeah. you lose a doctrine of creation. Yeah. Now, how do you explain any anything that makes a people ready for the gospel yeah. if you say that everything that happened in that culture prior to the 
proclamation of the gospel is destined to the flames. And secondly, because every every attempt to translate a a already verbalized and enculturated word like scripture is requires its realization in a new language and culture, then you're automatically saying that every attempt to do that is pure domestication in, in a... See, this is what Overbeck, who, who actually influenced... I don't know if he was influenced by or he influenced Nietzsche, um, Franz Overbeck. He was a theologian, an atheist, but, but taught theology, and he was actually the, the teacher of Karl Barth's father, who was not an atheist. He was a, a more pietist. But um, Overbeck's whole notion was that he had this radical eschatological view of God that basically is just disruptive, and that any attempt for it to become historical is already a, a, a domestication and then a violation. So any Christian form any, anything, even the Bible, has already basically been, it, it's best looked at as where a, a bomb exploded in a crater, but that's it. Yeah. The God's empty again. He's just left a mark. So all you, those marks do is point to the eschatological. And actually, that Bart never really left that. He sort of saw all historical forms as a crater of a bomb. Of course, World War I imagery is there too. But what it shows is God showed up, blew a a hole in everything and then left, but that form testifies to, to the action of God. So, so yeah, it, it's this very thing, but it's, it's very, very different than what already the New Testament is doing and what we're talking about. It's no, there, there is actually, there, there is actually this, the perfection and, well, yeah, the moving towards perfection and the sanctification of, of fallen creaturely forms to be able to uh, manifest um, knowledge of God and truth of God and be put into the service of God. Um, one of the things I guess we kind of shift the emphasis is a couple points I wanted also to talk about. When the early church, um, the church fathers, if you will, talked about um, Christianity engaged philosophy, I mean, first of all, a lot of people recognize immediately that they use a lot of the Platonic or Neoplatonic tradition. Um, but as Stanley Yockey, I think, brilliantly said, is there's a world of difference between Plato and Christian Platonism. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so um, what they're talking about is the, is the intellectual frame in which they expressed. And what they found, especially in Plato, is a set of, um, of, of carved out ideas and categories that allowed them to display what Scripture said um, about material natures and supernatural aspects that, that really there wasn't a, a huge language for anywhere else in that world to communicate those things. Um, so there is, there, there, you can't sit here and see that this was just simply a domestication of the gospel into Platonic thought. And it's actually the other way around. It right. is the forging of a new, new, new language and the forging um, Christian Platonism, if you will, is the forging of something fundamentally Christian, not something fundamentally Platonic. Right. Um, without losing the dimensions of transcendence, I mean, you could talk whole and part kind of stuff, right? Plato had a part. Um, fallen, limited, fragmented, could never lead to the whole. But once the whole comes and shines a light on what God had done through Plato, Plato then can be actually put in the service of the whole in ways that it could never be as merely a park separated right. from the whole. Right. Um, but what you see is really what, what happened with the early church. Well, first, firstly, philosophy did not mean what me, we mean by it today or even what the medievals meant by it. Philosophy was probably, as Kelly's great work on, on early Christianity, um, was, was much more the deepest aspects of one's religious life. Yes. It's a way of life. It's a way Jesus of life. Jesus is a teacher and the disciples. It was not really different than Socrates and his followers or Aristotle in his and the peripatetic school or any of these. It is about, actually, the, the monastery rather than the university is much closer to what philosophy and religion, even, even in the right. New Testament... And so what you have here is pitting philosophy against theology in, in that sense is absurd. Um, and so that's different than pitting reason and revelation, but they, there's a close. So when the, when the early Christians converted um, um, from the pagan philosophy, so the very term conversion comes out of whose philosophy? Plato. <laughs> this is Plato's language. Right. And we have metanoia, but, but we saw the parallel of converting from one way of life to a new way of life. And so this holistic sense of being weaned, schools of thought through which we're weaned from our idols and our loves are perfected are really what philosophy meant. So early Christian theologians called themselves philosophers. Yeah, they, they were advocates of the true philosophy. That's right, the way. That's what we right. mean by the way. And so there wasn't this pitting of that. And so then what comes of classical learning? I mean, that's, that's a great, great question. 
Um, and so what you see is, is kind of, it's, it's not a simple way to say classical, Christians took classical Greek education and they uniformly applied it the same way all the time. No, it was a little more messy than that. Um, but one of the things you do see is, is kind of a love and hate relation. They understood that, that, that there is wisdom of the world that the gospel is against. They understood that there is, um, there is worldly learning that is in opposition to the gospel. But they also understood that we were just saying that, that, that there is in the whole of creation and every culture, and in particular the Hellenic world, a lot of truths that they were surprised to find, to the point they thought they visited Mo Plato, went and met Moses on his way into Egypt. Yeah. They were stunned to find out the things that, that Plato knew not through, from having revelation. What is it about the 5th century BC? There's a term. Do you remember, Glenn? Yeah, I don't remember what the term is, but that period is really pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. all over the world, there's been, there's just, there are breakthroughs in, in China, in Greece, India, India Greece, just yeah. all the over prophets. the place. Yeah, something, something happened. God did something. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and that's one of the things you see really come to life is, is, is that, and then what you see is, especially with the Cappadocian fathers, um, you know, uh, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, who gave us a lot of our orthodox yeah. Trinitarian theology, right, right. Um, is, is they were, and their sister, they were, she, she actually homeschooled them, and she knew the philosophers and theologians to the point that they became kind of the, the, the legion. She always scolded them when they went too far with philosophy and didn't, didn't, didn't um, wean their philosophy off of, of sound biblical theology. So, so it's very fascinating to read that history. But what you see is um, Julian the Apostate, of course, rises up around this time and basically is jealous of Christians because they have taken over the classical literary um, canon and they're teaching it all over the place. And Julian the Apostate becomes emperor for a short amount of time and wants to basically stop Christians from teaching in the schools the classical literature. And his argument is that, no, if you're going to read the classical you know, philosophers and literature, they, then you have to subscribe to the classical gods. And so what you have here is an early debate on in, in a cultural appropriation, right? That's right. Um, at which That's right. So, so, so this, this, this pagan emperor wants to get the Christians out of the academy yeah. you know, and, 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 and wants to stop them, kind of like Von Harnack, yeah. stop them from teaching the classics. The classics, yeah. And so, in actually, the idea of a pagan emperor wanting to get Christians out of the academy strikes a remarkably contemporary note. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what I was saying about this stuff always circles back around, and the notion that you know you can't appropriate something that that doesn't you know subscribe to the particular culture and gods from which it's supposedly. I mean, and I think this is where it, the discernment of early Christians, I think, was phenomenal. Mm. Is, and they all put emphasis that on the ancient, the ancient, the more ancient something was, the more, the, the, the first principles it derives from is the more authority it has. They're not like today where it's new, new, yeah, new. Right, no, right. They're, they're, and they understood that the first principle from which all of this pagan learning, even in its distortion arose, was that natural revelation in creation. So it didn't belong to the pagans. It belongs to the Christians. And the Christians are perfecting it and orienting it. Now... One of the things you'll see, and this is one of the hard things for people reading that period of history, is they will see these patristic theologians slam the philosophers for leading to the heresies. They'll slam pagan learning, and they will go after, you know, Homer, the Odyssey, and all this when they're attacking. But when they're together and they're not in competition because they understand Christians know where to place these things, they're reading them and delighting in them. They're, they're having a great time. Why? Because they're not in competition with true revelation. They're placed within the whole economy right. of... Uh, yeah. of when I was writing uh, you know, Household and War for the Cosmos, which is yeah. in large part a reflection on Virgil and, yeah. and the Aeneid, you know, I, I was working in part with Augustine's critique of the Aeneid, but Augustine read the Aeneid, mm -hmm. and Augustine used the Aeneid in sermons to illustrate things he wanted to, yeah. to, to illustrate in terms of, you know, truth. Now, you know, I've said this before on the show, I would be happy if Reformed pastors just read what Calvin read. Yeah. You know, yeah. 
it would be a whole new world if they just read. Or, or Saint what, Saint Paul, if they, <laughs> but if they they actually read what he read. There's a great book by Charles Parti, who taught at I think Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Yeah, I, I just got this recently when you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah Calvin and classical philosophy. Yeah, and what 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 Parti does in that. So he goes through the institutes and shows you all of the allusions and references that Calvin makes to classical philosophy, Aristotle, the Stoics, especially Plato. Yeah. Plato had a, had a, there was a warm spot in Calvin's heart for Plato. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, I remember Karl Barth and his lectures of, 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 of Calvin. He, he sort of, he, everyone thinks that Karl Barth is in opposition to Plato, and he wasn't. He was a Platonist in his own way. It's a Christian Platonist. Right. Um, again, don't, don't, don't get them confused, audience. Don't. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, but what they're, I think what they're, I, I mean, maybe another way of putting it is it's the vocabulary that came from the Hellenic culture that allowed the church to express the fullest vision of God's transcendence in relation to the creaturely. Now, here's, here's another way to kind of think about it. Yeah. Like, um, there, I think most people think when the subject of philosophy comes up that philosophy is something that doesn't actually discover anything that's actually real or true. Yeah. That it's just this sort of vain imagination yeah. kind of running amok. Yeah. But philosophy, uh, to give it credit, discovers things that are actually true. Yeah. What did Plato discover that was actually true? Yeah. The immaterial yeah. is more important than the material. material. Yeah. Do we have any evidence of that in the New Testament? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a jo lot. John's gospel is the start. Not, yep. not merely redemptive history, but all the way back up into the eternal life of God. Right. Yep. So Plato says that what can't be seen is more important than what can be seen That's because right. what can be seen is temporal yep. and what can't be seen is eternal. Yep. And by the way, I'm quoting Paul now. Yep. And what can be seen points to, it desires that for which yes. it, 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 it was endowed with being and, and the gift of being, which is the whole thing about, you know, the, 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 you know, the creation groans for... So, for now, getting back to the, the I, point you made a little while ago about discovering Plato, let's say you're an early Christian, you read Plato for the first time, and you come across this discovery that was made in the 5th century B.C. by... Platonists, you say, how did that happen? How did they understand that? Which is why the Timaeus and Genesis were often done in dialogue in the early commentary work really? of the early church. Yeah, that was a favored of the patristics. Sorry, Glenn, you had a point? What I was going to point out is we've talked before about uh, the idea of the world itself being sacramental. Yeah. yeah. It, it points beyond itself to spiritual realities that you also see in Plato. Yes. You know, it's in the New Testament, it's in all kinds of places throughout Scripture, but it's also in Plato. Now, obviously, Plato gets a lot wrong. Oh, yeah. There, there are crazy things in Plato. Oh, so yeah. don't, don't take us, yeah. uh, you know, to, 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 to imply or, or don't take us to say, to, you know, that it takes to mean that we're saying that everything in Plato is great. No, you gotta. When you eat chicken, you you throw away the bones. Yeah, there are bones in Plato. Yeah, that's you right. just throw those things away. Yeah. They're just not worth it. And reading Plato in conversation with the fathers who who weaned Plato off of the idolatry and brought him in, into subjection, all of his arguments into subjection to the knowledge of God and Christ, you get to start to see the radical difference between Plato and and Christian Platonism. Right, right. And that's where you, you see that. You see, and you get an exercise on how to do it. I mean, that, and that's what we're called to do, to bring all knowledge into mm -hmm. arguments into submission to Christ. And, and that doesn't mean you throw out everything. No, you bring it into its proper submission to Christ. Um, one of the interesting things is, of course, the, the rhetorical tradition of, of in the, the Cappadocians in particular really love to study Greek rhetoric and, the lang and they love their language and even all the times they tried to denigrate that they weren't committed to puffed up knowledge um, you will see they probably write in some of the finest Greek uh, around but one of the interesting things you see is they studied rhetoric not merely to, to kind of, not merely for you know out of love of the Greek culture and language um, and the excitement of it all, but uh, first and foremost, their argument was the putting their, as they say, their logoi in the service of Christ as the logos. The best exhibition of our knowledge and the most concise way of saying expression 
Christ. But secondly, they studied rhetoric because they understood rhetoricians to be decept deceptive, evil folk. And, and one of the great lines is they, they were playing rhetorically and they were employing rhetorical structure of phrases um, in the service of an artificial theory. So they wanted to expose kind of what we like to do these days with all the, um, what I consider fraud, pseudo-intellectualism of woke theory and all the like, is basically rhetoric and technical vocabulary in the service of an artificial theory. You know, that's fascinating to reflect on because Augustine was a, a, a rhetorician and he taught rhetoric. Yeah. Kind of in the spirit of the sophists. Yeah. Who, ta who taught that, you know, if you followed, you know, their, their teaching, kind of like uh, Tony Robbins, yeah, you, know, that's you, know, right. you could be, you could awaken the giant within, you know, and, and have whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you just, uh, you know, listen to Protagoras or some of these other guys, you know, uh, you'll learn how to, to, to exercise or use words to get what you want. In the midst of all of that, Augustine was looking for something more. Yeah. He wanted reality. He didn't want just sort of uh, the appearance of, of, of the good. He wanted the good. Yeah. He wanted, didn't want the appearance of truth. He wanted the truth. That's right. And so he dug deeper. And that's where, yeah, it, it, his is similar to the, the logoi in the service of the logos. is similar to the, the sign in the service of the thing itself, the reality itself. And he, he understood, and really that is, re I mean, that's really what theology is up to, is the way in which our language is, is anchored in. I mean, think of Genesis text. So beautiful when you get that first set. Before there's any human there, God divides the, the, the light from the darkness, and God names the, the light day. Okay, we didn't name, that's not social construct going on there. We have already put into the created order a naming, a meaning, something that, that exhibits the true nature of things that is not arbitrary but is grounded in the very reality. Um, I mean, one cannot name reality any better than God naming it. Right. Well, in, you know, I, this is kind of fascinating because I'm working my way through the through the city of God again. Hmm. And I mean, I think I'm in, it's at book 10 or book 9 oh, nice. or, or book 11 where he's talking about creation. He's talking yeah. about the day, you know, separating light from darkness. <laughs> and he's using that to reflect upon the falling, uh, the fallenness of the, of the demons or the fallen angels. <laughs> so he identifies uh, day and night as referring to something more than just simply physical historical realities. Yeah, yeah. He's saying that there is something deeply spiritual and categorically sort of uh, being addressed here that, in other words, we can't use, uh, n you know, darkness or night uh, uh, as a metaphor for good. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's something that we, we use to describe something that's fallen. Yeah. And, and, and what uh, Augustine is doing there is he's, he's showing us that when we think about just the very nature of things, that there's a kind of embedded truth or embedded sort of reality or sort of way of interpreting reality in the very nature of things that's accessible to everybody. Um, hmm. So wherever you go in the world, uh, light and truth are synonymous. Yeah. You don't, you don't find groups of people, now you might, you might uh, discover people who talk about mystery and darkness. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's a very different. Yeah, that's that's the, like the, the you know the cloud of unknowing. It's right. like it's almost like um, the it's almost like there's a veil over something. That's what but that, that but that's but but yeah. we're, you're not saying with that with that metaphor. Yeah. That what is dark is good. That's right. You're saying it, what, what you're saying is you can't get at what's That's right. good. It, it's, it's, that cloud, it's like Moses up on the mountain, that, that cloud of, I mean, that was their old language, and Glenn was right. talking about it with the, the apophatic uh, and the, you know, that's right. how they, they typically, the darkness of God. It's not meant to th say that God isn't pure light, but what it's saying is that when, when we start to um, encounter more closely our union with God as human creatures, not yet fully in, in, in our glorified state, um, what we start to encounter the closer we get to God is a moving away from that light 
um, even though the light, it, it's because that light is so bright that that cloud has to cover it because we aren't capable of bearing it. Right. And that's the incarnation of Christ and the, the mediation of the church, yeah. Well, we, we ought to start wrapping things up here. Um, just so folks know out there, we're recording two shows today, and Glenn has to get away for a radio interview. So we, we're cutting it short a little bit today, not a whole lot. But uh, is there anything you want to say in conclusion here, Glenn? Yeah. Um, during the Renaissance, a lot of people mistake the Renaissance as being a resurgence of paganism. Right. It really wasn't. Mm. And one of the points that they will frequently make, the people who make this argument, is that if you look at Raphael in the vestibule of the Sistine Chapel, he paints the School of Athens. Yeah. All the great Greek philosophers. Mm. By the way, one of them is actually um, Michelangelo. Hmm, I really? believe he was Heraclitus. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but what people miss is that just across the wall from this, Raphael pointed a piece that is, I think, incorrectly titled The Disputation of the Blessed Sacrament. I would argue it really should be the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Hmm. But the point that he was making with these two pictures is that there's no incompatibility between Athens and Jerusalem. Right. That, yeah, Athens got a bunch of things wrong, but they also got a bunch of things right. Yeah. And just like the Hebrew prophets were the Jewish world's road to the truth best expressed in Christianity, the pagan philosophers were the pagan world's truth, road to the truth best expressed in Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so Athens and Jerusalem do, in fact, in the Renaissance vision of things, have quite a bit to do with each other. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Well, I don't have anything more to say that I haven't said already. Anything yeah, you want to say to wrap up there, I think that said it best. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, anyway, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate uh, all of the people who listen to us on a week-to-week -week basis. We've said this many times. We're astounded at the... The, the number of people who tune into each show. We get emails and texts and comments on different platforms. Many of which I still need to get back to. Yeah, so hang I mean, in there. <laughs> hang in there. Yeah, yeah. We're up. We, you know, we, we, do, we do this uh, on the side. <laughs> so uh, we, we're sad that we can't really do justice to all the, the sort of the response that uh, is generated by, by the show. But anyway... Thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your interest. And we'll be with you next time. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.